0: Let us hear then the word of our God, Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, as we begin here today, uh, I want to tie in the catechism question that we read there, number three, a little bit ago. And uh, here in America especially, we really like to focus on what it means for me, the so what question, how is it practical, and so on and so forth. And all that is very important. But we also need to read God's word And understand what we are to believe, not just what we are to do. And when we come here to Psalm 110, that is especially our emphasis. Psalm 110 emphasizes what we are to believe about the Messiah. And that then impacts the things that we do and the things that Jesus did. But the focus here is more on thinking correctly. And so, as we come here to this psalm, we come to one of, if not possibly, the most important psalm in all the Psalter. And I say that because of what the New Testament does. You know, we might think of Psalm 2 or Psalm 1 or Psalm 23 or Psalm 119, and, and all these are very important psalms. And, of course, they're all important in one way or another. But the New Testament quotes Psalm 110 along with Psalm 118 more than any other. And because of that emphasis, it, it causes it, if you will, to rise to the top. And that we need to pay extra attention to the things that are found here in this psalm. And so my intention then is to do that very thing. I could easily preach in one sermon here this psalm, but we're going to spend more time emphasizing what the New Testament says is important about our understanding here. And so that's the the plan. There are at least 18 either quotations or allusions to Psalm 110. Now, the allusions, of course, you can debate on some of those. Some of them are pretty clear, some of them not so much. But it's a, a significant number. And so, because the New Testament says this is so relevant, then we are going to treat it that way too. So, with that in mind, let's once again do our overview. And if you have the handout from Palmer Robertson, I'll make reference to it briefly. If you don't, certainly I can summarize it here for you. You remember what I said before? Martin Luther said that the Psalter is a summary of the scriptures. It's a little Bible. And others have said that the uh, the Psalter is a summary of all the Old Testament. And so as we begin, we don't begin in Genesis, as it were, with creation, but we begin with wisdom of righteousness and wickedness. And then we see, of course, the establishment of David in Zion as king. And for the rest of book one in the Psalter, the emphasis, there are other themes, but the main emphasis is David facing opposition both by unbelievers outside of Israel and inside of Israel. In book two, David is more established and stable as king, but he's still facing opposition and yet there is a, a, a greater focus outwardly uh, toward the nations. In book three, here in the Psalter, this is Psalms 73 to 89. Basically, Israel failed. The priesthood has failed, the, the monarchy has failed. Israel has failed. They are in exile, both northern and southern kingdom. In book four, while they're in exile, God is remaking his people, reminding them of what is most important, how sinful they are, but also what is the essence of true religion, now that they don't have all the outward forms with them. And then in book five, where we are currently, we see that uh, God brings his people back to the promised land. In Psalm 107, you see that especially the regathering of Israel, and so therefore we praise our God for doing this. In Psalm 108, it continues with praise and hope now that they are back in the promised land. In Psalm 109, we see that there's still opposition. There are still difficulties, even after the exile. And so they use this account of David and the opponent against David and say, hey, this still applies to us, even after the exile. Which brings us then to Psalm 110. Here we see that the monarchy is restored. The monarchy failed, and now someone 110 is saying, hey, the promises of God to David are not over. It is restored even after the exile, but um, not quite in the same way. In fact, there's a connection to the priesthood in a way that was not seen before. And so we will see some of this as we go through it. And so because of this, because of this restoration, we praise our God. Because the, the Davidic promises are still true and applicable, we praise God. So then Psalms 111 to 117 are all about hallelujah, praise to our God. Our God has not changed. The exile didn't change God. The exile didn't change his promises, not ultimately, And the exile didn't change our responsibilities as God's people either. And so these are some of the themes that we see here in this part of Book 5. All right, now with this broad overview, let's now do a brief overview of Psalm 110. So if you look at your handout in your bulletins there of Psalm 110, you'll see on the back side of the the psalm here some of the outlines. And as I've said uh, for most every psalm we've looked at. Uh, there are many ways of looking at this, and here is no different. And verses 1 to 3 are the first utterance of the Lord. And notice they are made up of 10 lines. So If you want to turn the page over, you can see, you can count them up. There are 10 lines. And the names of God used here are Yahweh and Adonai, then in verses 4 to 7, the second utterance of the Lord also is 10 lines, and the names of God used here are Yahweh and Adonai. I'll explain that difference here in a bit. Now, the next two outlines, you'll see different ways people summarize it. Okay. Then the next two say, well, wait a second. You know, the actual utterance of the Lord is in verse 1, and the second one is in verse 4. And so verses 2 and 3 expand on the first utterance, and verses 5 to 7 expand on the second one. And so these next two outlines show that. The last one is a bit different. You'll see the king, the priest, and the warrior, they're subdivided a little bit differently. Uh, Again, we can't cover all these things together, so I'm giving it to you here. Take this home, read it, look at it, try to understand God's Word better. Now, as I always do, I give you some statistics in regard to the names of God. Every passage is uh, uh, gives us various names of God, where, wherever we are, and that helps us to understand God's point in that passage. So here, there are two key names, Yahweh and then Adon. But there are two forms of Adon. There's Adoni and Adonai, and we'll have to understand what that means. And then you have the various pronouns referring to those names, so 28 altogether, and David refers to himself twice here in this psalm. All right, so again, I encourage you to read through this and, and check that out um, as you try to understand God's word to us here. Well, let's look here then first at the title, and the title here is pretty straightforward of David, a psalm. Okay, so, David wrote it, and it's a psalm. Now, remember what I have said. The word psalm implies praise by using musical accompaniment. Okay, it's not just praise. It's not a acapella. Okay, it's assuming that we are using musical instruments of some kind. And so, that then typically means it's used corporately, not just individually. And that is certainly what we understand about this psalm, too. All right, now, let me take you back, for those of you who are here, to Psalm 3. In Psalm 3, that was the first time we saw a title. We started with Psalms 1 and 2, and then we came to Psalm 3, and, and that was the first time we saw a title. And so I talked briefly about this preposition of, okay, of David in this case. What does that mean? Well, there are actually a variety of, of uh, suggestions out there, but you may recall that I said, Based on how the New Testament takes the of, on those few occasions they mention it, they always refer to authorship. And so that has been my approach all the way along. When it says of David, that means David wrote it. It's not something that somebody else wrote about David or something to that effect, but that he actually wrote it. Now, in this case, that becomes exceptionally important. And that's because Jesus said so. So let's look at that here then. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. As I mentioned here a little bit ago, Psalm 110 is quoted many times in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at those and we'll start with this. Matthew 22, this is in the context of the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus with their questions. And so the beginning of verse 41 here at the end of the chapter, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And No one was able to answer him a word nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Now, Matthew helps us here. He gives some context of how all this fits together. But you see how clearly Jesus says David wrote Psalm 110? Now, let's turn here then to Mark chapter 12 and just briefly read the parallel passages here. Each one of the gospel writers, synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke include this. So in Mark 12, verse 35, you see it's condensed. It says, Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And then lastly, let's turn to Luke chapter 20. And here then is Luke's account, very much like Mark's, okay? But you'll notice a few differences. But in Luke 20, verse 41, And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? All right, my first point here is to say simply, Jesus makes this clear. (laughs) Hey, there's no question that David wrote this. And so obviously they thought this was important and they put this in here. Every one of them says it. And so we then need to see the importance of this as well. So my goal here then is to approach Psalm 110 in this way. We're doing some of this overview first and then we'll look at this Question of Jesus really for the rest of our time here today. And so we're going to talk about the person of the Messiah today. Next week, the plan is to look at the rest of verses, uh, verse 1 through verse 3, and we'll talk about the position of the Messiah. And then in the next week, we'll look at verse 4, the priesthood of the Messiah. And then lastly, we will look at the triumph of the Messiah in verses 5 through 7. So Again, because of the significance of Psalm 110, I'm not just going to rush through this. And so that is uh, the plan going forward. So let's look then at the handout again. And let's now uh, look at the first line. The first line of verse 1. And it says... Now, remember, this is an actual translation of the Hebrew. I'm not paraphrasing or smoothing out here. It says, an utterance of Yahweh to my master. Now, we're used to, the Lord says to my Lord, right? That's what the Septuagint actually says. The Hebrew says, an utterance of Yahweh to my master. An utterance. This word utterance is used all the time in the prophets, but it's only used twice in the Psalms which highlights this as well. It's standing out, you might say. And so certainly all that God says is important, but this word is extra important. It's extra important because David is referring to the promises that God has given to him, and of course how it points us to the coming Messiah. Now, notice then the name that God, of God that he uses. He uses the name Yahweh, which is really no surprise. The name Yahweh, of course, emphasizes God, who is our covenant Lord, the one who has entered into a covenant relationship with his people. He's not just God. He's not just our maker. He is the one who has said, I'm going to marry you. I'm going to be in relationship with you, my people. And so David is saying, hey, okay, the covenant Lord of Israel, my covenant Lord, the one who entered into covenant with me in the Davidic covenant, he is speaking, basically. Okay. And so notice then how he says this. And so Yahweh is speaking, and then it says, to my master or Lord. Okay, now, first of all, note the, the pronoun My. We've already answered the question. This obviously refers to David. But the thing that we do need to make a careful distinction on is that this word here is Adoni in the Hebrew. The one in verse 5 is Adonai. What's the difference? What does it mean? What is its significance? Well, when we have the name Adonai, like we have in verse 5, it almost always refers to God himself. There are just a few occasions where it doesn't. Now, when you add a suffix to it, uh, you have a pronoun on the end, then it can refer to to humans or God. But when it's just Adonai, almost every single one of them is God. Now, let me say, the name Adon, in all the various forms, it's found 775 times in the Old Testament. And I've looked at every single one of them to tell you what I'm telling you now. Okay, So almost every time, just a few times, Adonai does not refer to God. And that's what we have in verse 5. Do you see the implications of the Trinity there? With that brief statistic. Now what about when Adon ends with the E, Adoni? That's what we have in verse 1. Well, every time it refers to a human master. Except for these. In Joshua 5, verse 14, when the commander of Yahweh's army came, Joshua called him Adoni. In Joshua 6, when the angel of Yahweh came to him, he called him Adoni. at first. That's in verse 13. In verse 22, once he realized it was the angel of Yahweh, he didn't say Adoni. In Daniel chapter 10, a few times when the angel comes to him, he calls him Adoni. And then in Zechariah, when the angel came to him for the various visions, he calls him Adonai. Now, here's the point. Okay. When Joshua, Daniel, and Zechariah are referring to Adonai, they're referring to someone that they thought was not God, an angel, okay. until they realized it was God, and then Joshua changes His language there in chapter 6. In other words, when we see verse 1, the utterance of Yahweh to my master, this is referring to a human. Now check out the implications of that. That is quite significant. Don't run to the New Testament too soon. What did David mean by that? An utterance of Yahweh to my human master. What's he saying? Well, as you might expect, there have been many suggestions over the centuries as to what he meant by that. So, for example, some say this is actually not David. It's a court poet, and the court poet is referring to David. David is the master. David is the Lord. Well, as I've already indicated to you, hey, the most natural way of taking of David means David wrote it. And so it has to refer to David, and Jesus makes it clear if there were any questions. <clears throat> so that doesn't work, <clears throat> even from the beginning. That does not work. So other people have suggested, well, yeah, this is David speaking. Now, what master are we talking about? Well, part of that has to do with when David may have written this song what was the context? Well, some people suggested that it was written when David was established as king in Zion. So just like Psalm 2, Psalm 110 was written in that context. Um, Okay, possibly. I'm not sure it fits so well, but that's one position that uh, some have presented. Others say it took place when David brought the ark to Jerusalem. And so when he put the divine throne beside the human throne, that that's how verse 1 especially fits together there, right? Sit at my right hand and so forth, Um, even down to verse 5 about the right hand and so on. Um, Okay, possibly, Um, but I think that the most referenced uh, scenario is, is this next one. And this is the one I think makes most sense. Okay. The suggestion is this, that David is referring to Solomon as his master. And possibly is referring to Zadok, the priest, in verse 4. Now, remember, we're talking about initial point. What did David mean when he wrote it? We're not to the New Testament yet, right? So what did David mean when he wrote it? Well, let's turn to 1 Kings here a moment and chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. Now, I encourage you to read the whole of the chapter, but we can't do all that here together today. So in verse, verses 1 and following, we see that Adonijah, one of David's sons, it basically claims the throne. David's about to die, right? He's, he's, he's almost done as king, and so one of his sons say, I'm going to be king. And if you look at uh, verse 7 especially, it says that Joab of the army and Abiathar the priest, remember the one that was with David when he was running from Saul, they sided with Adonijah. But they didn't want... Zadok and Benaiah and Nathan the prophet and some other people. And so they weren't part of this coup attempt, you might say. And so for the rest of the the next several verses, down through verse uh, 27 especially, you see that uh, Nathan and Zadok and so forth, they come together and they talk to Bathsheba um, about what they need to do and how they need to talk to David about this, right? Who's going to be the next king? So let's pick up in verse 28. Then King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, Let my lord, right Adonai, let my Lord, King David, live forever. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Baniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. Then let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel, and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Well, the rest of the chapter is about that actually happening. So notice then that Solomon actually becomes David's master by the end of the day, because Solomon is actually king. And so, not surprisingly, verse fifty, Adonijah is a bit afraid now. Okay. And so you see that in chapter 2, um, in verse 1, David is almost dying. Verse 10, he rests with his fathers and so forth. Look also at verse 27 here in chapter 2. It says, Verse 27, so Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest of the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Remember, Eli's sons died, his descendants died at Nob, but Abiathar was spared. Remember that story? Hey, well, now he is set aside. He is no longer king, or excuse me, priest. And then if you look down at verse 35 at the end of the verse, but the king, Solomon, put Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. So this is why some people think verse 4 had an initial idea of Zadok. He is a different line of Aaron than the line that Eli was in and so forth. All right. We could certainly do a whole lot more here, but you see the point. The argument is that David initially is referring to Solomon. That's why he says Adoni a human master. Initially, the fulfillment is that Yahweh is speaking to Solomon, okay, and says, sit at my right hand, and so forth. This is the initial point. There is some evidence uh, historically that Psalm 110 was used like Psalm 2 and Psalm 45. That is, every time a new king was placed on the throne of David, they would sing these psalms. They believe, we believe that Psalm 110 was one of those. And so the coronation of the next subsequent king, so Solomon, Rehoboam, and so forth, right, down to Hezekiah and Josiah and so forth, right, each time they would sing this. But remember, <clears throat> Psalm 110 is in Book 5. It's not in Book 1. It's not in Book 2. Okay? It would make sense to put it near the end of Book 2, but it's not. It's here. It's in book five, after the exile, after people have come back to Israel. Why is it placed here? Well, I think the answer is simply this. There's no real king on the throne after the exile. And so Psalm 110 really cannot be sung after the exile. And so they're starting to look more deliberately for a greater king a greater master, a greater son of David. Now, they've been looking for it since 2 Samuel chapter 7, but, and even all the way back to Genesis 3.15, but now after the exile, they're looking for it in a much greater way. And, and, and even after the exile, you have Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, but he's not ruling as king. Instead, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, kind of work together a combination of the priest and the king after the exile. Do you see how God in his providence is preparing them for the uniting of these offices in one person? Zechariah says this in one of his prophecies. And so as we come to Psalm 110, Israel then is now, in a way they hadn't before, looking for someone greater. Someone who is going to be David's son, but also be David's master. The Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, but he is also going to be greater than David. How's that going to work? But you see, that's Jesus' question, isn't it? Well, before we get back to Matthew, let's uh, do this first. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 just a moment. Now let's refresh our memory as to the promises that God gave to David. I've made reference to them a little bit. Let's read them here again. So in Second Samuel chapter seven, <clears throat> you remember this is when David wants to build God a house. And God comes to him through Nathan the prophet and says, No, you're not going to build me a house. Your son will. And here are the words. Verse 12 of Second Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. He will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Hmm. Psalm 110 verses 1 and following sounds similar, doesn't it? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Psalm 110, in the order of Melchizedek too, right? You hear some of the same kind of language to Psalm 110. All right, so this is the promise given to David. Now, let's enter into the mindset of Israel during the time of the exile. Let's turn now to Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, you recall, this is the last psalm in book three. Okay, this is the last psalm. And book three is all about how Israel has failed and they're in exile. And so Psalm 89 is the culmination of this idea of the failure of Israel, the exile, sin, and judgment. And it begins by saying about the Davidic covenant. You see that in verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3 especially, I have made a covenant with my chosen I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations and so forth. And it continues here. If you pick up in verse uh, 35, it says, once I have sworn to, by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Say hey, law. God promised that this would not go away. And yet they're in exile. The monarchy has failed. So the next verses, verses 38 to 45, are all about how God has judged them. And not kept those promises, basically. And then in verses 46 to 48, how long will this go on? Okay. And then in verses 49 to 51, okay, where are your former loving kindnesses? Do you hear them? Do you hear the angst? Do you hear the, the sorrow and the despair? Okay. Well, now we come to book five. And we come to Psalm 110, and the Davidic covenant is reintroduced. Do you see why, then, there are seven hallelujah psalms that follow Psalm 110? We thought the Davidic covenant was over. We went into exile. Even after they come back, there's no real king. Zerubbabel is not really a king, and yet the Davidic covenant is reintroduced, And so we praise our God for it. Do you see how Book 5 is fitting together in this way? Now, during the time from Malachi to Christ, they were looking for this Davidic son. Now, what often happened is they looked for a Messiah that was a priest. They looked for a different Messiah who was a king. And some would even look for a third kind of Messiah who was a prophet. And what Jesus did when he came was say, hey, it's all in one person, me. But in the meantime, they're looking. And for example, it was very common in the time of the Maccabees to see the fulfillment of Psalm 110, in Simon, the high priest. Okay. Now, th- let's turn back to Matthew chapter 22. We tend to read this and say, ah, oh, how foolish. What why don't they understand this? But can you now understand why they didn't know what to say to Jesus? There are all these different views. These aren't just views that we've come up with over the last uh, two millennia. These were questions people asked before Christ came. And so when Jesus says, whose son is the Christ, they say, oh, the son of David. Well, yeah, everybody knows that. But how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? And they're like, well, I don't know. Now, surely there were some who did not want to answer because they hated Jesus. But there were also others, surely, who just didn't know. And so Jesus is saying, look, we've got to put this together. The master he's talking about in verse 1 is the son of David. We've got to put this together. So <clears throat> let me pause and bring a, all these thoughts up together here a moment. I was giving you some of the different views, and I've been emphasizing what I think is the right view here of our understanding. And I think that Psalm 110 must be understood in its initial context, and the best way of understanding that is that David is referring to Solomon here initially, and possibly Zadok, and probably for each subsequent king they kept singing this. But after the exile, it took on a messianic flavor in a way it had not prior to the exile. And yet, from the beginning, it always pointed us to Jesus. But again, if you're, if you're thinking of progressive revelation, right? If you lived in the time of David, you lived during the time of the exile, you don't have the 2020 vision that we have now because of the words of Jesus, right? And so they're, they're wondering, how does this fit? But Jesus comes and says, you know, it always pointed to me. There are types, there are shadows. Yes, you have Solomon and these things, but ultimately it's always pointed to me. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This, of course, is Pentecost. And Peter begins by responding to the speaking in tongues with Joel 2 and so forth. And then he turns to Psalm 16 and says, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. And then he quotes from Psalm 110. And so pick up in verse 34 of Acts 2, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, right? Note, David's the author, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know, right? Remember, Jesus asked the question, right? So let everybody know the answer to that question. Now assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Messiah, the son of David. Do you hear what Peter is doing here? He's, He's bringing it all together in this statement. The anointed son of David is David's Lord. He he was a human master at first, Solomon, but he's much greater than that. But yet, do you see, Jesus is our human master. He has humanity. He's the God-man. Let's turn then to Romans chapter 1. And this is one of those passages where we can debate. Is this an allusion to Psalm 110 or not? But listen to what Paul says. In verse 1 of Romans 1, he talks about himself, right? He's an apostle and given the the call to spread the gospel. And prophets talked about it in the Old Testament, verse 2. And then know what he says. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Messiah, son of David, our Lord. And then he says, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Peter puts the humanity and divinity of Christ together. Paul puts the humanity and divinity of Christ together in these words. Let's turn then to Hebrews chapter 1. This is the last one we'll look at here today. Hebrews chapter (coughs) 1. Okay. Now, you remember, I said a little while ago that Adoni, that uh, Daniel and uh, Zachariah, for example, use that term for angels. Now, listen to this. Hebrews 1, verse 13. <clears throat> to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Okay. Look, if this Psalm 110 does not apply to angels then how can it apply to just a human? But it does apply to a human, a God-human, a God-man, and that is Jesus. Now, because of these passages that I've just read from, some people say it never applied to Solomon in the first place, that it always applied to Jesus. But I would disagree. I think there was an initial application, and now we see a greater application. And so here's our point, right? What are we to believe concerning the scriptures? Okay. What do the scriptures principally teach, right? A man is to believe concerning God. That's our point here, right? And what duty God requires of man. We have to believe this. This is our practical application. We must accept it. We must believe it. This is who Jesus is. He is the son of David. He is a man. He is human, fully human without sin. But he is also God, David's master, David's Lord. He is God, God's son. Both go together. The other point of practical application is simply this. I've just shown you how to do biblical theology. Most of the time, we focus on the stories, but don't talk about how it fits together. Or we just talk about systematic theology. What does the Bible teach about whatever topic? I've just shown you how to do biblical theology in just a few minutes here today. That is eminently practical. I've shown you how progressive revelation works. It starts with an initial idea, they're looking for something greater, and then it culminates, in this case, in Christ specifically. And so, we must believe that Jesus is God and man. If you believe that Jesus was just a good teacher, then you're not a Christian. If you believe that Jesus just appeared to be human, you are not a Christian. We have to believe rightly about the person of Christ if we're going to find salvation through the work of Christ. Our view of Christ is so relevant in the New Testament, at least 18 times it's pointing us in that direction. We have to believe this about Jesus. And if you don't, you are not a Christian. So this is why you have many people throughout the centuries who say certain things about Jesus, and you're like, well, man, how could they be a Christian? You know, think of Schleiermacher or Kierkegaard and some of the good things they said, but they denied the resurrection. They didn't really believe this. You, you know, think of Thomas Jefferson and a lot of good things that he said and sounded very Christian, but you know, he doesn't believe in the deity of Christ. And I mean, how can they actually be Christians? Because we see here that we must believe this about Jesus. Now, there's no question understanding the incarnation is a challenge for us. And we must accept it by faith. But on the other hand, the point is pretty simple. Jesus is fully human. He is fully God. We don't fully understand how that works. But he has two natures in one person. Okay, completely without sin. And so we begin here today with this practical question. Who really is Jesus? Jesus who is the person of Christ, the Messiah? Well, this is part of the answer. And so Lord willing, next time we will continue to answer this question of who is Jesus by looking at this position where he is placed at the right hand of Yahweh. And so let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you again for your word and And uh, we thank you that you don't just give us a list of rules, do this and don't do that. You also give us your word to teach us what we should believe, what we should understand. And we thank you especially for Psalm 110 and these other related passages that, that help us to see who the person of Jesus is. We praise you, our Lord, that you as God's eternal Son... Eternally begotten of the Father, came and took on humanity, took on flesh without sin. And in your deity and in your humanity, um, you still exist. And because of your person, we know then that salvation is fully accomplished. But as we focus on your person here today, we pray, Lord, that you would conform our minds to think rightly, that we might then also live rightly. We pray, Lord, that you then would would be honored in this and that Christ would be exalted and that uh, his person would always be elevated in our minds and thus in our lives. We pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.